This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Sloane Crosley, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for having me. I think we've got a superstar on our show. Yeah, you. I'm I'm pointing. You can't see (laughs) because we're recording this on Zoom, but I'm like looking over my shoulder. Thank you. Hi. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, Sloane is a New York-based writer who has written three New York Times bestselling essay collections. And I'll get back to this, but have you been to Sydney? Have you been to a writer's festival in Sydney? Oh, yes. So I have not been to the writer's festival. I've been to the writer's festival in Melbourne twice. Okay. Um, and I've been to Sydney to visit twice, but I've not been to the... I have the seen you. I have seen you. On the mean streets of Sydney? No, I have seen you at an event, so it must have been in Melbourne. Yeah, it yeah. was. Yeah, yeah. I have seen it you was. read one of your short stories, I think. I I love Australia. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. I do. Maybe I was on a panel. I think I was on a panel. You were on a panel. I think mm-hmm. I've seen you on a panel. It came to me while I was reading your biography. I thought, oh, I've seen her speak. Anyway, so yes, we do have a superstar on hand. Um, three New York Times were selling essay collection. I was told there'd be cake. How did you get this number? And look alive out there, as well as the novel, which we're talking about today, called The Class. Oh, no, we're talking about cult classic. Second novel. Second novel, yeah. Yes. Cult classic. I, all the Cs and my last name, too. It gets very muddled. Mm, mm, cult classic, The Clasp, it? Crosley. It's just a lot. Yeah, but I'm getting my head around it. <laughs> She's also a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. Wow. And has written for numerous other publications. So, yes, we are talking about cult classic today. It's a contemporary and comedic novel about one woman in New York who strangely begins to run into all of her ex-boyfriends. I really want to talk about being single, not just in New York, in any capital city. <laughs> okay. I mean, yeah. I... <laughs> I should say, um, yeah, there's a lot about, uh, there's, you know, the, at the heart of the new novel is a, is a single woman who's in her late thirties. I should say though, I am not a relationship expert. Huh. <laughs> oh. We can talk about it. Yeah, exactly. 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 Um, and, uh, it's actually been a minute for me. Um, but I had plenty of, Plenty of single person trauma, of course, um, that seeped its way into the book. I feel that there's labels on single people in whatever age group you're in. If you're in your 20s, there's a label. If you're in your 30s, there's a label. If you're in your 40s, there's a label. And then if you're in your 50s, like me, there's a label. What are these labels? Well, I think they vary, right? But in your 20s, oh, she's a party girl. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you're saying that it sort of graduates to like a, I don't know if you guys get the reference of a Kathy cartoon, but it sort of graduates to like spinsterdom. Is that the... Exactly. The, yeah. Because in your case, you're career focused. Career yeah. focused. Yeah. Career. 
Yeah. Lest we forget about the career. Yeah. Cause you can't. Yeah. yeah. And then when you get into your forties, it's like, well, she's missed the boat. Yes, that's true. I mean, with the, the miss the boat, it's always so funny. Yeah. I think, you know, when you mention labels like that and sort of define them, um, that transfer from when society thinks you are or are not supposed to do something um, is so unheralded and so unfair. And I think there was maybe possibly a six minute window in your life that you somehow missed. A good example would be like your first kiss. Like if you have it too early, people think that's sort of scandalous. And then after a certain point, if you have never been kissed, you know, that that thing, people think that's sort of sad. And I'm like, what was, where was the window? The Hollywood window in which this was like the perfect time where it was not too early and not too late. And Goldilocks just sort of fell asleep. And this is the correct way you're supposed to live your life. So I do understand now that you're helping me define it, that that there is this sort of, what is the transfer from like party girl sowing her wild oats to yikes, if you continue along that path, what you're never going to learn to love someone or never going to learn to love you. It's It's very it's very strange. It's very difficult dating in New York or any major city for obvious reasons, I think. But I think one of the things we we get out of is is too much labeling. Do you know, I just feel like I know a lot of single people of all um, shapes, sizes, and ages. And, you know, some of them are happy about it. Some of them are not. They're, it's different reasons. Um, and more pressure on women, I think, than men. Oh, well, yeah. That's also for obvious reasons, right? I mean, part of that is biological. Yeah. Um, so there's this assumption or presumption that, you know, the clock is ticking. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then part of it is also, there's just more presumption of a flaw when things go wrong. You know, I mean, I think that after a while, I mean, I personally, the the women friends that I have, which makes it sound like I made them up and don't have friends. <laughs> the ladies who are friends with me, if they are single after, let's say the age of 40, or have never rather, let me amend that, have never had a long-term relationship, whether that's dating someone, let's, let's just define it as more than three years. I don't blame them. But if the man has never had a long-term relationship after the age of 40, after three years, I do tend to think there's something wrong because it is so much easier and society is so much more forgiving. There's a bit in the book, not to shoehorn it in, but where I talk about how women were are sort of meant to emerge after each relationship as if from a, a cocoon, right? Like mm-hmm. as it's with a smattering of sort of adorable flaws, you know, maybe you're a klutz, maybe you kill all your house plants, ha ha ha, as opposed to like deep psychosis. <laughs> um, whereas men can can emerge, you know, basically having killed a man in Tijuana and we're like, wow, that's really deep. <laughs> Like, look at all those layers that you're bringing forth to the, bringing to bear in the next relationship. But I feel like, yeah, in the novel, all of this is just sort of ratcheted up to a ridiculous, a ridiculous degree. (laughs) I don't actually think we're that hard on each other. No, I don't. But I think there was a lot of truth there. Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, that's what satire, which, you know, there are some satirical elements and some sort of speculative elements to the book. Mostly it's just literary fiction, but that's where it comes from, right? It's just like wandering around honestly, my favorite part of the book probably to write was um, there's this internal monologue that uh, our heroine Lola has in the middle of the book about online dating. And I am very blessed to have limited experience (laughs) with the apps, but I have enough. (laughs) And it was really fun to just sort of just fillet them alive. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to go back and um, talk about how you came to writing. Firstly, tell sure. me more, because you're prolific. It was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> yes. How long is this podcast? <laughs> so are you originally a New Yorker? Yes. Um, I I mean, it's so funny. I say yes with such confidence since this is an Australian podcast, but if you were to actually, you know, get the magnifying glass and the map out, mm-hmm. um, I'm from White Plains, which is about a 25 minute train ride north of the city suburbs, uh, sort of John Cheever territory, but a lot less nice, more mm-hmm. malls. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm from White Plains and I always wrote, I mean, I always wrote, I didn't always, I wasn't always a huge reader when I was a kid. I mean, we would take out books from the library. I loved stories where you can sort of still see in a way the DNA or the skeleton of them and what I do now in some ways, at least for fiction. So I loved like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and the Secret Garden and, you know, anything that had like Alice in Wonderland, like some sort of portal to something Charlotte's Web, exactly, exactly. Oh, Charlotte's Web. Oh, I love that book. I know, just thinking about it, I'm like, oh. (laughs) Um, Probably the first book that made any of us cry hysterically. But yeah, you know, so I did that, but I wasn't really, I, it wasn't like, oh, being a writer is a logical vocation. It was a very encouraged hobby. But yeah, I always wrote and then went to school in Connecticut and then, you know, traveled around a bit and eventually landed back in in New York City, where I guess I started watching things and writing about them. Mm. I want to talk about that because it's a very American thing and probably less now than it was. I saw Jonathan Franzen in Sydney recently um, speaking and he, he was talking about relationships with parents and how Americans really, you know, at the age of 17, 18, that relationship's entirely different because they move away from home and some of them only ever come home once or twice a year. And But it made me think about those formative years and, I'm, you know, I'm referring to myself too at this time, which is where all my girlfriends met their current partners were those years, right, 18, 19, 20. And I wondered, yeah, well, I mean, I was married at 21. You know, I divorced very, well, not quickly, maybe eight or nine years later. But a lot of people, those early relationships were were it. Now, not all of them are still together, including myself, but I wondered with Americans when you move away from home, and, and you can tell me if this is true or not, that is it those formative relationships in those years of, say, university and what you call school, or is it afterwards that people tend to, generally speaking, meet their life partner? Definitely afterwards. I mean, I think that enough that colloquially we, I'm not even colloquially, but like when I'm trying to give a shorthand for a couple, I, I will actually go out of my way if one of their defining characteristics is, oh, they met in college, they met in high school, dot, dot, dot. It's that kind of thing, meaning they only know each other. They And then you know, they grew up together in this certain way. And the earlier it is, the more sort of foreign the other's experience is. And I don't think, you know, I'm speaking for New York, but I have to say, even in the rest of the country, it's not like everybody met in high school. You know, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I think that's more frequent or, or college. I think that's certainly a more frequent the idea of getting married absolutely before, let's say, 30 is a much stronger pressure in the rest of the country. And it's not nothing in New York. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it's like what I was saying before. There's this sort of invisible line where, like, you know, my sister got married 
think she's got married at 27 or 28. And looking back, that seems extremely young and insane mm-hmm. to me because they'd also been dating for like five years. But, you know, but I don't associate her as being one of those people who didn't date anybody else. But now that I think about it, <laughs> it's, it, you know, it was mostly in, in college. And I think what happens is, you know, it is connected to what Franzen was saying about that that sort of family unit, but different, you know, individuals have different reactions to that. You know, if anyone has ever been in therapy, even if you think you are, if you're trying to emulate your parents or you're trying to run away from them, you're still in conversation with them. You kind of can't escape. You don't, you know, just, it's not that cocoon thing. You don't just hatch out of nowhere. And so if you're surrounded by this strong family unit, maybe you want to go make one of your own. You sort of see how it works. It comes naturally to you to not be alone, to, to constantly have a crowd in the house, you know, that, that feeling of partnership. Um, or maybe you feel like it's claustrophobic and you run away from it as fast as you can because, you know, you already have that space of these very close relationships filled by your family. And for me, you know, I, I, I like my parents, um, but I don't see them, you know, all the time. Mm-hmm. So it's this sort of mix of, of, of wanting to find something that is both like how I grew up and something that is totally new and nothing like how I grew up. And it sort of takes you a while to find that, that balance, you know? So, so in other words, not having the pressure to get married or to, to partner up at a young age, I think is, extremely healthy for the most part. But if that pressure coincides with being in a urban environment with tons of choice, you know, I think it can be kind of uh, paralyzing mm-hmm. or lack of pressure rather. It's like, okay, you don't have to do anything. And also you have all the choice in the world. Like what's to stop you from being a commitment phobe, like my narrator, you know. Mm. New York's got that label now, hasn't it? That I want terrible. <laughs> No, I mean, it's got that label, I guess, because of Sex in the City and various TV shows that, you know, there are a lot of single people in New York, you know, that there are, yeah. I think it's actually not even a label. I think it's the U.S. census. I think, I think yeah. there's actually, I, I don't know the the numbers on this, but I think it's a, it's a tremendous amount of single people it came up a lot during the pandemic, during COVID, because there were all these, you know, endless articles. I know you guys saw them and produced your own about homeschooling and parenting and the difficulties of, oh my God, <laughs> you know, being trapped in a small apartment or a house with a newborn, not, you know, or, or a newborn's easy, you know, a, a two or three-year-old. Um, and I certainly didn't envy my friends in those situations, but I have to say I did envy them their media coverage. I mean, I felt like, you know, I was single during the pandemic and absolutely was Googling like, you know, chemicals released by human touch. You know, and there's so many single people. And I had a friend who had a great line about it where she's like, homeschooling did not bring down Alcatraz. Solitary confinement brought down Alcatraz. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Oh, look, I was the same. And I've, I've talked about this on the podcast many times. Yeah. Um, you know, I've lived alone for a very long time, mm-hmm. well, since I got divorced. And I didn't realize that I was alone until COVID hit. Exactly. Well, you have this community and that's what's so beautiful. I mean, I think COVID was instructive in that sense. And again, I'm not actually trying to shoehorn the book into this, but so much of it, you know, it's about all these men that come parading through this sort of five block radius that the main character sort of enters into for various reasons, sort of in a sort of Groundhog Day kind of way. Really not to be cheesy about it, but it's like about the friends we made along the way. Like my favorite relationships in the book are the ones she has with her friends, the sort of found family from work 
this, you know, you bond with people for eight hours a day and they really do become your family in some ways. I mean, you should never confuse it too much when in that mix are people who can fire you <laughs> or if you can fire someone else slightly different than family. But otherwise, like that, that that's sort of how well you know each other and the time period over which you get to know each other. It's not so different than a family. And so COVID was really both highlighted that in some ways and also made that scary in some ways because everyone retreated and everyone's priorities became clear. And what's weird about it is like, I don't know about you, but what did I expect? Do you, do you know what I mean? Like it's like a, a couple who I'm really close with who has a young kid and access to a house outside the city. I guess technically they could have taken me with them, but this is not a zombie situation. It is not a even a World War II situation. You know, there's actually no need for them to do that yet. So it's like, in some ways I felt abandoned. Um, and in some ways I felt that this is like actually a logical response to the, to the problem at hand. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. if they truly needed to, you know, hide me under some floorboards or save me from the zombies, you know, uh, that they would have. Mm-hmm. And then I would have done the same for others. Um, But it was, it's a strange, it was a strange, Hmm? a strange time. Particularly (laughs) in Australia. I mean, the lockdowns were brutal. Well, you guys really had a a murderer's row of problems. Mm -hmm. You had the Outback fires, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then there was some sort of violence in Melbourne, right? Mm -hmm. And then there was also the lockdowns. Mm -hmm. And then the floods, Mm -hmm. the floods. Mm -hmm. I was going to guess locusts. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> no. So sorry. Yeah, no. We've <laughs> had a bad run and now we've got you really you know, have. Yeah, experiencing La Nina. Yeah. And people tell me that the climate change isn't happening. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a yeah. really bad. Australia's yeah. not a good bellwether for that. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. But I want to talk about dating now. Um, sure. <laughs> Honestly, I don't understand it. We, when, we, when we talk about floods, fires, and climate change, how do you think we're not talking about dating? <laughs> but, you know, that term, and I'm not saying this is all of Australia because it could be just me. So I have friends in San Francisco. I have an Australian friend that married an American woman and wonderful and they they are really part of my extended family and I travel to San Francisco once a year except for COVID. But post-COVID, straight away I slipped a trip in and spent three months there. But in the early days, let's say 10 years ago, when I would hear them talk freely about dating, I was shocked because it wasn't in our vocab back then. You didn't 
talk about the fact that so openly, I always felt that Americans were more open about being in a relationship and not being in a relationship. Wait, so you're saying the openly, in other words, you sort of, um, I guess I just want to understand the contrast. Yes. Is that is that in Australia, you're saying you just sort of ease into it and that is, is ill-defined. You never talk about it. But when you say talk about it, like you're saying they're dating and they're talking about seeing other people as well? No, 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 no. We just don't talk about dating at all. Like it doesn't have a label. More so now because I think there's an American influence. But, you know, mm-hmm. I would be at dinner and somebody say, yeah, I'm dating. <laughs> one, I don't know what that means. I'm I mean, dating I'm, like several people or one person. Well, or... I'm dating. No, I'm dating several people because I'm out there trying to meet someone. Mm. That's what I'm talking about. We don't have that. Wow. We don't have language for that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That like heaven. Yeah. That's like heaven. <laughs> It's like, you know, the yeah. old joke it's about the Inuit having all the words for snow, you know, it's like, wait, you don't, I want to know what you don't, I, I don't care if you have a thousand words for something. I want to know what you don't have, a, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, we don't have a word to describe condescension. I'm like, let me move to that society. Like, what is this, <laughs> what is this place? Um, I think that, yeah, a little bit, although I think that. I don't think it's necessarily sex in the city, though. I mean, I let's let's knock it back a little farther to Jane Austen. You know, there's so much there could be an intellectual way, or hopefully in my case, a literary way to articulate this topic that takes up so much of our brains. I mean, I wonder if it's too potentially, you know, we are for all our puritanical tendencies when it comes to physical stuff. We are an unembarrassed people, the Americans. We could use a little more embarrassment Mm. (laughs) on the whole for our actions. (laughs) Hypothetically, I can think of a couple of things we should be embarrassed about. It's a short list. Uh, But I wonder if our propensity to, to, to talk about it or to want to talk about it, you know, once we've gotten over the fact that, I don't know how else to say this, that stupid idiots talk about dating, right? Yeah. You'll overhear someone in a bar or, you know, on the subway or something like that being like, I don't know, like he said this and da, 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 or like a guy being like, oh, you know, and she hasn't called me back, like whatever it is. Um, and now that it's so, so now that it's been released as a potential, you know, to your point, uh, kind of. Uh, to use a tech term, a sort of vertical, a, a valve that we're gonna yeah. that we're gonna speak about, then it's open season on speaking about it intellectually. It's open mm-hmm. season on autofiction and philosophy and um, the ethics of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a way, that's why you know Jane Austen was so revolutionary, um, or even Edith Wharton is that you know these were things that were not necessarily analyzed in such sort of beautiful detail, and then they did it. You know, whether it's society or dating and stuff like that. I think the Australian thing, if I may, may I share a theory about Australians yeah. with you here now? <laughs> okay. <laughs> One of my favorite places, we should say. <laughs> I think this is broad, but part of the reason it, it but it, the not talking about dating is sort of a bullet point in the following. So I think that you guys have all the sort of forced cheer of LA because of the weather. Not that you don't have a winter, but it's not a winter, 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 Mm. but especially in Sydney, you have all that, you know, sort of, it's got that sort of LA is a, is a constant comparison with the, the industries, the sort of vibe, the culture, it feels, it feels like that a little bit, Yep. but then underpinning that you have the sort of history of tracing it back to the British and that's a very repressed society. So between the repression and the forced cheer 
is anyone in therapy? I wonder, like, it's like, there are things that are simply not talked about because it's like both the pressure for everything to be lovely because everything is lovely in Australia, (laughs) you know, sort of on the surface. And then that deep shame of embarrassment uh, or etiquette or how certain things are supposed to be. I totally agree with that. It's like in this weird mix. And then, and then what comes out in the wash is like, yeah, nobody talking about anything. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's changing now because we are more influenced by Americans than we are the British. And so young. Right. Of course. For years. Yeah. Yeah, Through television. That's been true. Yeah. Yeah. And then sometimes, I mean, for better, I hope that you can take um, to use a cliche term, whatever sort of dumpster fire of pop culture that we unload on, on your lovely country and like, pick through it and find amazing lessons about openness and how to like talk about your feelings and, and sort of discard yeah. the callousness and the, the obnoxiousness of the rest of it. Yeah. I hope you can do that. <laughs> you know what else I've observed? And this is recently, and because I'm a lot older than you, I've, I'm having a great career and, you know, I've lived a relatively great life until COVID came along, but anyway, getting over that, that, there is always a lot of observation and discussion about people my age being single. But what I have noticed is nobody talks about the couples that are very married and are very unhappy. I know. <laughs> There's not a label for that, is there? Misery. Do you Are you aware of the label misery? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's not a label for... Yeah, we don't call them like, oh yeah, you know, yeah. the broken birds birds and well, broken birds is actually that's a specific thing, but you don't call them, let's say, I don't know, like the broken lamp complex yeah. syndrome. The yeah. oh, they're foundationally off or what yeah. there's no yeah, we don't they're in a loveless relationship. They've hated each other for the last 20 years and they are staying there because they have nowhere else to go. I mean, I think that, you know, my generation, I'm I'm lucky in that that is less prominent. Yeah. It's certainly less prominent than my parents' generation and your parents' generation, yeah. um, where if something is truly wrong, you diagnose it as such and cut and run, right? right. Or you're getting married a little later, you know yourself a little better, You yeah. because there has been the aforementioned openness, because there has been the aforementioned conversation about it, you, you, you hopefully are better equipped to know what you need when you find a partner that says said obviously you know you can't control another human being and it's like there are also all manners of, of surprises waiting both internally and externally in a relationship but like i feel like it's less i actually know very few divorced couples yeah which is strange mm. it's, which mm-hmm. is sort of strange um but i think it's because you know i'm in my early 40s now i think i knew either no couples or divorce or more divorced couples when I was like 28. Mm. You know, now it feels a little, and we'll see what the next phase brings us. Maybe, you know, when it's 50s, 60s, I'll be singing a different tune that will sound more like the 28 year old, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, everybody's getting divorced. <laughs> um, but I feel like uh, part of the reason there's no term for that is because it is kept in every way possible inside the house. Right. Mm. Mm-hmm. So for all our openness, we do that too. We don't actually air everything all the time. <laughs> no, it's not, not, <laughs> so I feel like it's maybe kept between people. You know, we're also, it is a precious thing 
And you're not going to discard it easily just for financial and logistical reasons, forget emotional ones. And so I think if you can work on it, you do. And and in order to work on something like that, you probably tell a few select people of the difficulties you're having, but it's not the same thing as being a dinner, dinner party mm. and doing the, the 1950s man, like, ah, oh, the old ball and chain or, oh, my husband, I just can't get him to pick up the socks. You know, like, it's like, we don't really do that. Mm. I just want to uh, touch on your writing. Did you, how did it start that you were writing articles and then you turned your hand to fiction? What kind of happened at that point? Because I guess with the stages are that you're writing feature articles and you went to short stories and then you went to fiction. Was it linear like that or were you back and mm. forth or... I would say that uh, it's actually the, the the turn of the hand is more invisible here in the sense that I always wanted to write short stories, always wanted to, or did write short stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've written essays, not short stories. So you've actually, I, mean, I think there's been like one short story of mine ever published, but um, you know, I, I wanted to write fiction and then I sort of fell backwards into writing nonfiction in a funny way. Part of how I started the the writing career, the the sort of journalism career was the whole, you know, necessity is the mother of invention thing, where basically I was writing for the Village Voice, the Village Voice cut their essay section. Um, and then, uh, so I moved to the New York Observer. The New York Observer was then purchased by Jared Kushner and turned into a broadsheet, mm-hmm. uh, which is like the New York Post. I'm doing a square with my hands. Um, <laughs> And then, uh, weirdly, I I just hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me to submit to the New York Times, which at that point had a city section where they were also running essays. um, And only when all these other places folded did I think, well, maybe. (laughs) Uh, And so then I started writing fairly regularly for the New York Times and started um, when they did an op-ed section online called it the townies series i was their inaugural columnist i started writing for all sorts of different places and then eventually um somewhere in there got a, a book deal for a collection of essays which was not actually now it's quite ubiquitous it was a little well a it was very male dominated it was mm-hmm. like david sedaris david rykoff chuck klosterman bill bryson i could go on um then it just became was also working on fiction at the same time you know, because I wasn't writing short stories, which are um, short <laughs> and 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 publishable format, you know, uh, it's not like there was a lot of opportunity for me to just sort of share my fiction along the way, the yeah. way there was with nonfiction, because you have all sorts of forms of nonfiction, right? You have journalism, you have narrative nonfiction, which is not really short stories so much as having some sort of thematic underpinning or theme, you know, or or some sort of story that. Uh, has a point to it <laughs> that isn't just pure entertainment. Yeah. And so I was going back and forth. So the novel, the first novel, when the class came out, to me, it felt like a long time coming to the outside world. Of course, it looks like a shift has has occurred. Um, and now I think I'm probably, I don't know. I mean, I'm probably going to go back and forth. I'm working on nonfiction now. Um, I'm obviously talking to you and promoting cult classic. Um and so it just sort of helps to go back and forth, I think. What do you prefer? I mean, nonfiction, it's it's so funny. It's always like uh, the grass is always greener in certain ways where it feels like the thing that is more difficult often feels like the thing that is somehow more worthy, yeah. right? Yeah. And in some ways that's true. And in some ways 
I do think that that nonfiction comes more easily or more naturally to me at this point. I have more of a, there are more trenches dug. There's more sort of piping for the nonfiction in my brain. But uh, fiction is also, it's just an entirely different set of problems, an entirely different set of treats. One of the treats being that you can cloak a lot of things, um, whether they're political opinions um, Mm -hmm. or, or, you know, stuff about your family, whatever it is, you could really just jam that into fiction in a way you cannot with nonfiction. But Mm -hmm. also with nonfiction, you get to bounce off the world, right? Mm -hmm. You get to like, some of your work is done for you by being on the planet. They come up with the stories. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, assuming you're not uh, a liar, like a big liar. (laughs) Just oh, a little mini liar. I mean, you know? That's that's a whole other podcast. It's not <laughs> lies and the liars who tell them a podcast. That's a conversation for another day. Sloan, yeah. we're out of time. Thank you so much. I really do feel that it's a big treat having you on this podcast. Oh my gosh, thank you. It's lovely to talk to you and so so honestly about what goes into into the writing. So thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.